0: Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold.
1: Our guest today is the co founder and CTO of Armist Security, Nadir Israel. Nadir guides the technology vision behind Armist to protect unmanaged and IOT devices. He co-founded the company in 2015 with its CTO, Yevgeny Dibrov. I should have checked the pronunciation of that one. Um, (laughs) Prior to Armist, Nadir worked at Google as a senior software manager. And before Google, Nadir spent six years in the Israeli army, specifically in unit 8200, where he designed and programmed software, projects, and systems, served as a team leader and did officers training, attaining the rank of captain. Nadir, welcome to the Second Command Podcast.
0: Thank you, Cameron. Thanks now,
1: for I, Yeah, I, I was talking with you just before we hopped on and um, I spent a month in Israel, loved it when I was only 25. And, you know, thinking back 30 years ago, I learned that everyone in Israel, has to spend time in the army. It's not like in you know North America where you you opt in and you decide to sign up, but you decided to stay in for a little longer. I'm curious as to to how your experience was, and then you mentioned like 8200. Is there is that like the Navy SEALs or something? Was there a specific reason for mentioning that one?
0: Well. Um... Well, first of all, you're right. It's uh, it's mandatory military service uh, for everyone. Uh, that's um, already kind of a big thing to, to chew on, especially when you're 18, just out of school, uh, kind of out of high school, and uh, uh, you basically have to enlist and serve. Uh, I, I'd add that I mean 8200 maybe in particular uh um put this way I, I wish from a maybe a physique standpoint I was a navy seal but the reality is more like a uh, geek on, on keyboards but uh <laughs> what I'd say is that uh, 8200 is probably uh the best equivalent to the NSA uh in the US that's basically ah. the, the nation. Uh, I I will say though uh, however pretty similar to maybe uh, uh navy seals in that sense it's uh it's a unit that you volunteer to. Uh, I mean, the fact that the military service is mandatory doesn't mean that you don't have uh, any kind of control or the ability to uh, enlist uh, proactively into any units. Uh, in fact, lots of uh, kids in their uh, kind of senior year in, in high school, they basically go to all kinds of different uh, tryouts, tests to different units. And uh uh, the, good, uh, the good thing about uh, uh, the Army in that sense, or the, the IDF, is that uh, they basically, and 8200 in particular, have first pick of whoever they want. And uh, they do try out tests to large uh, scales of, uh, of students and basically pick uh, whoever they want. And uh, somehow I managed to uh, trick them into getting that unit and serve with some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and uh, to your point, continued the service uh, willingly beyond the mandatory three years there. And do do most of the kids think
1: about it as a career move like that, or were you one of this the kind of few who who saw it as a career path? Like, I don't I don't think most people would think of it that way.
0: Well, back then uh, when I did it, uh, not as much as today. I think today uh, the name 8200 is way more dominant, uh, especially in the in the walls of like uh, in, in the area of cybersecurity or in other areas. Uh, similarly, it's it's way more well known, especially hmm. in Israel. Uh, so people do uh, optimize for it. Uh, and also uh, the IDF uh, kind of wised up to the fact that uh, it's hard to find uh, kids who willingly sit and learn programming and do all kinds of things at home. I mean, there are kids like that. I'm, I'm one of them, but uh, yeah. not as many as there used to be. So they actually do training courses like pre-Army training courses that essentially train people up to pass such tests Uh But to your point, uh, I think that one of the really nice, beautiful things really about this is that uh, the the IDF and units like 8200 Act basically is sort of social equalizers um, in a way, or at the very least, they allow for social mobility. Uh, You Mm. can start uh, from a certain point and this can catapult your career uh, forward quite a bit. Uh, when I joined Deerpoint, I knew nothing of this. I, I wish I could say that this was a grand plan uh, that uh, that uh, kind of got to where I am today. But the reality is that I um, have stumbled um, into this uh, and then in a, in, a, in a good way. I think it, it introduced me to a world uh, that is rich and uh, amazing and got me, Uh, in front of and to meet uh, some of the best people I know to date. Um, And it's really a big part of why I stayed uh, as well beyond uh, that mandatory service.
1: Yeah. And as, as I recall, I think it was mandatory services, three years for boys and two years for girls. Is that right?
0: Well, it's, uh, it's also changing in the last few years as well. They're trying to kind of equalize that into, I think, uh, two years and eight months or something like that for everyone. But when Good. I joined, it was three years for guys and two years for girls. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, and then you decided to stay for an additional three years past that. So was that because you were starting to career track and gain some um, some excitement in what you were working on or what was the purpose to stay? Yeah.
0: It was as uh, naive as you can guess. I just um, really loved the service. I loved the work. I love the people. Uh, I, for uh, for a while there, thought that this was going to be my entire career path. Uh, I kept staying on for more and more roles. I mean, if, if you kind of think about uh, what this is to uh, an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old, uh, this whole notion of... Uh, throwing uh, a bunch of responsibility on you, uh, telling you that, uh, you know, you're basically uh, fighting a cyber war here with, uh, which really is uh, uh, kind of the reality of things, but fighting kind of a cyber war with, uh, uh, you know, for for, for the very, I'd say protection of of the country you're from. Um, And uh, you get the responsibility for, really what amounts to human lives. I mean, it's uh, there are all kinds of different examples of that, but uh, on top of that, uh, you get to sort of try out, and it, it's unclear to me to this day why they would give someone like me that kind of responsibility, but to manage people, manage teams, eventually manage entire groups of people, and you can kind of step up the ranks there um, pretty well. And on top of all that, I think that as opposed in, uh, to, to the NSA, which I kind of paralleled before, 8200 is a uh, Let's call it the, the smaller scrappier version of NSA. Like it's not uh, huge budgets and buy whatever you want. It's more like uh, here's what you have to work with, get the job done no matter what and uh, you know if you don't then bad things might happen. Uh, so <laughs> that, that's really the mentality for people. And honestly, it's very it, it helps a lot in the mind frame of building a startup after because it's yeah. very very similar um, in those uh, in those regards. That's actually what I was going to ask you about
1: was do you think that the the throwing people or, th- you know when you got thrown into the fire and were given responsibility and managed people and projects at such a young age? Do you think that has given you as a leader the um, the ability or the understanding that people are capable of more than we maybe let them, you know, I think we often try to delegate and hold people accountable. Do you flip that and just give people more and let them run with it?
0: Yes, hands down. Uh, It's the reality of having uh, too few people to work with at any given point in time. And the fact that there is lots of responsibility to go around, obviously not every person uh, that joins or every person you end up managing uh, can, can handle that. So um, there are, Um, There are people that get more and people that get less responsibility, but those that do get um, and can handle responsibility have the chance of also um, rising in ranks, getting actual management experience at a very young age and Honestly, it, it shapes you. I think it's a young enough age where um, it really shapes your perception of reality. It, it for instance, uh, gives you a certain fearlessness that uh, you wouldn't otherwise, I think, acquire. It would be way harder. Mm-hmm. You get a fearlessness of understanding that um, things are possible, even when it seems like uh, you have very little to go on. Uh, you make it work. Uh, and it, it sort of steals you, I think, for... Uh, the rest of your life and this ability to just look at challenges as what they are challenges and not really stress factors if, if that makes sense
1: yeah what do you look for in terms of those leaders then to know that they are capable like how do you what kind of behavioral traits or skills do you see or look for to then decide you know i'm gonna i'm gonna let these people run with more than maybe the average person would
0: i think um there's a there's a mindset where when you get a task you just take ownership of it, uh, call it extreme ownership, even uh, to use a term I learned uh, way later in life uh, from, from, famous, uh, from the famous book. But that notion of extreme ownership of basically saying, okay, I got this task. This is mine. I, I need to raise a flag. There's a problem. There's something else. No problem. But I own this. That extreme ownership trait, you can see it almost immediately. There are people who have mm-hmm. that. Or there are people who don't. Uh, And that translates really well um, to um, your own personal management, like basically being able to manage yourself, your time, your tasks, and be able to project correctly what's going right and what's going wrong, as well as managing people. And the other one, which to me is a must, is uh, transparency and willing to own up to uh, things that go bad. Things go bad all the time. I think that uh, your ability to uh, reflect that correctly and be able to prep management, prep, other people who are relying on that information is crucial. So those two things I think are some of the most important ones uh, that I see.
1: Yeah. I'm right there with you on that introspection, that ability to kind of take blame for a project and, and then, you know, let people know what happened and what went wrong and then grow from it versus, you know, passing the buck or externalizing. So, so you're, you're in the, the military, you're there for six years, and then you do the, the logical leap from the military to Google like the similarity the similarities there aren't any right like or are there no. yeah.
0: um well Google's a very different experience right i think uh, uh it was an interesting transition uh i went i mean at the time uh, when I went to Google google was uh at uh, like the, the hottest thing in Israel at the time. Uh, I think it, uh, you know, there, there's always like the uh, the company at the time, uh, at any given point in time, that's like the, the hottest one. Uh, these days, of course, it's Armis. I mean, there's no uh, no question there, <laughs> but uh, but Google uh, Google at the time was the hottest uh, thing. A friend of mine from the army is the one um, who uh, basically brought me to get interviewed there. Uh, I ended up spending about five years there uh, working on specifically Google Suggest or Autocomplete, the stuff that uh, completes your question Uh, for you so yeah yeah in in case you ever needed uh, a face to every autocomplete failure that you've ever had uh you have one now uh but uh google is a very different beast uh uh, than the army on the one hand um it's a very different experience right the army by well by definition is kind of frugal right everything is sort of like uh very very different uh and uh google is is uh you know um pool tables and, uh, you know, snacks uh, for lunch and anything you want. Um, and at the same time, uh, what was very similar is very good people, like people mm. who are very smart, very capable, uh, lots of extreme ownership, uh, by the way, lots of uh, a mentality that basically uh, glorifies uh, a flat organizational structure as much as possible and personal accountability for things. Uh, but at the same time, I think the difference between it um, and the army is that, you uh, in the army, um, I felt that drive of you can uh, always do way better and you must, because if you're not, someone else will be one step ahead of you and consequences will be dire. I think Google, at the end of the day, is a company that's doing very, very, very well for itself. And so the overall individual contribution of one person to that scale of a company is fairly smaller and it's and it's felt. I think that uh, ultimately... You know, I, I, you know, I, I maybe uh, think highly of, uh, of myself, but I think that me leaving Google did not leave Google, you know, in a, in, in a worse for wear. It didn't leave them in a bad place. There are plenty of good people who can take over that. And uh, I was looking for a challenge that ultimately is something I felt how crucial I would be to that kind of challenge. And that's really what led me ultimately uh, um, to the next thing in life as well.
1: Wow, if that's not a recruiting soundbite for Armis, I don't know what is either. That's like just you know, if you basically want to be a number inside of a big corporation, work at Google. But if you want to if you want meaning, meaning in your day-to-day work, come to work with us. Did how do you find how did you find meaning inside of such a huge organization? And how did they help you find that? How because Google is a cult, right? And 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 cult is kind of in between a business and a religion. It's that strong culture. And and I don't I, did Have they ever crossed the line like have they ever gone too far in a culture like to become that or are they really riding a nice balance?
0: um good question. Well, let me answer the first part first. I think that what Google does really well or at least did very well when I was there is despite the fact that this is a huge company with tens of thousands of employees uh at any given point in time, I think they're over a hundred thousand uh now it still felt uh, like family. It still felt small. It felt like uh, the distance between yourself and, uh, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they were there is still not a lot. Like you're a few steps away basically uh, from them. And on top of that, it's an organization that uh, really uh, glorified and, and encouraged, um, you know, personal opinions. It encouraged uh, speaking up. It encouraged, you uh, Um, how important your opinion, no matter where you are on the organizational ladder, and how anyone can make a contribution there. I think that that kind of transparency, as well as uh, that encouragement of uh, opinions, uh, is something that I've personally also taken into into Armis. It's something that we advocate as well, because it works really well. It creates a very healthy organization of people who want to contribute, who want to be part of it, who care deeply about the organization. And if you don't do even one of these things, if you're not fully transparent, if you're not actually encouraging opinions, it breaks down mm. almost immediately. But Google does those things very, very well. It's, it's a core part of the culture there. It's a core part of their value system, and they really adhere to it. And it yeah. works really well in, in, in organizing a huge organization like that.
1: I think it also attracts more A players as well. Like A players thrive in that environment, right? Whereas B and C players run away and hide.
0: Correct. I agree. And kind of going back to that point from before around also personal accountability and, and, and transparency, it works the same way in reverse mm-hmm. as well. It, it, it creates the situation where the people who want to work in an organization like that are people who are like that, who are personally accountable, who appreciate that in other people and peers around them, and who don't like, to your point, people who sort of hide away, do their own thing, uh, kind of just below uh, being noticed. Yeah,
1: I feel like that's really what culture is all about as well. It's, it's really not about the pool tables and the free lunches, right? C- culture is about that accountability and the core values and the, the transparency. Like it's the way that we all show up versus, you know, the little perks that we get when we're there. So I, I had to check the numbers just because when you said that they're around 100,000, probably now Google's now at 139,000, which is, is like astounding, right. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, and then Google in Tel Aviv or in Israel is now a hundred or eight hundred people. So you know, eight hundred yeah. just even in Israel alone is is a big company.
0: Yeah, I, I, if I recall, at the time at least I was there, it was the second largest office outside of uh, the U.S. Or I, I might I might not be accurate about wow. that, but I, I felt like I think it was it was uh, one of the larger ones outside the U.S. Yeah.
1: It makes sense i mean there's such a huge tech hub there right now as well which is really intriguing so i then then you make the logical leap to go from google to start your own business with it with a co-founder like what the hell are you thinking what did your parents think you were nuts
0: i um at the time uh had just gotten married and uh uh and my um my father-in-law asked that exact thing he was like, I thought, I thought my daughter was marrying someone from Google. And now like he's going off to what, be unemployed. Like, well, what the hell is that all about? Yeah. Um, So it's interesting. I think um, it's one of these things where um, early enough in your professional career, uh, taking chances, trying to, you know, make large leaps, trying to make things happen, um, trying to connect with uh, things that, uh, you know, are are inspiring or exciting to you um, are important. I mean, I, I, That leap, I mean, a lot of people look at it as like a huge risk, but uh, I think realistically, I didn't see it as a risk. I saw it as an opportunity cost. I mean, yeah, I might waste a year or two years of my life and I could have maybe done something else in that time, but I wasn't worried in the tech community and with uh, the experience and with everything I had that I wouldn't be able to find another job. So in that context, making a... uh, Call it a cal- taking a calculated risk here, and uh, and trying to start a company uh, is something I I, I definitely um, wanted to try, uh, and, and I wanted to try and build, and uh, thankfully and uh, luckily um, managed to get a few other uh, very good people uh, to to join in, and then uh, and then the fun started. So. I,
1: tell tell us a little bit about Armas and and what you do and then and is how do you pronounce the ceo your co-founder's name yevgeny
0: yevgeny but yevgeny. Uh, he goes with uh, he has like a starbucks name yev so you yev. can go with yev okay yes.
1: i actually had a starbucks coffee named after me years ago in in vancouver canada oh. because yeah, we, we were building a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK that was getting pretty famous in North America, and I was the COO of it, and I kept going into the our, the office right beside our head office and ordering the same coffee every day, and this was 20 years ago, you know, Starbucks hadn't become what it is today, and uh, <laughs> and so they ended up calling the drink the Cameron, and people would literally, I'd be in line, and somebody would go, can I have a Cameron? And they, I had no idea who they were, they'd never met me before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice <laughs> that's, was ridiculous. that's quite the that's uh, quite the achievement
1: you know it was just it was a little ridiculous there's a little sign that was like the drink of the day and it was a picture of me one time too it was so stupid all right so tell us about RMS who are you guys
0: so, um, Armis, uh, um, if I, I can even basically do the direct continuation from where I was before, and I'll also frame what Armis is. Please. Uh, I joined forces with uh, Yevgeny, or Yev. Uh, he uh, was a good friend of mine, uh, a bit from the Army, but mostly from from school after, from, uh, from studying together at the Technion. And um, we... Um, Uh, We worked together uh, for quite a bit before, but uh, he was, at the time when I was at Google, he was at a company called Adalom. Uh, They were a cloud security company that got bought up by uh, Microsoft and became basically Microsoft's cloud security solution. He was the first employee there. Uh, So he had uh, kind of a front row seat there for pretty much everything and participated in a lot of the different client interactions. And uh, uh, when uh, Adalom got bought by Microsoft, that was basically the day... that uh, that happened is the day that uh, uh, me and him sat down on a couch and uh, started brainstorming what exactly we could do. And we started from, uh, let's let's call it the most, uh, I think it's way more, uh, um, it's something that people do way more today, but at the time it was a very boring way of starting a startup. Uh, We went to every single client of Adalom, um, partners, investors, anyone who would basically talk to us and just ask them, what what are you guys missing? What, What do you feel? is a growing gap, a huge problem, something that, uh, that pains you and is going to grow exponentially. And uh, even though we got plenty of answers for that, uh, we did get one answer that seemed to resonate no matter who we asked. And that answer was, the more time goes by, uh, the more um, other devices I have, the more stuff I have that isn't just laptops or servers. I have uh, network gear, I have IP cameras, I have uh, MRI machines in hospitals and infusion pumps, I have industrial controllers, I have pretty much anything that isn't laptops and servers. And when we started looking into it, we uh, discovered that it's vastly outpacing uh, the amount of normal devices uh, out there. And the difference between the two is that for your laptop, you have an antivirus. You have agents that basically go on it and organizations can see and control. For everything else, you don't. At the time, we categorized the problem as IoT, or that's what we thought it was. Uh, we, um, We ended up... I think accidentally understanding what the real problem is, and it's a problem of scale. Forget IoT, not IoT, or any kind of other acronym. The problem is basically scale. Organizations don't have any idea what devices or assets they have. Like a large scale enterprise has no idea what's even on the network or in the cloud or anywhere else worldwide. Mm -hmm. They have no way of protecting things at scale because uh, installing things on the devices requires first seeing them, but secondly requires a whole apparatus of control that when you multiply by millions and millions and millions of devices just doesn't, uh, doesn't work. And what we understood is that the world basically requires a whole other paradigm of security tools, what we call agentless visibility and security. And it's, uh, it's essentially, if I had to sort of summarize all of that into what Armist provides. Um, Armist provides organizations with basically like a Google Maps for their organization, all their assets, all their devices, everything. And on top of that, layers of information for risk, for security, for vulnerabilities, basically giving them entire visibility and control over every asset and device that they have, no matter what it is. That's what, uh, what Armist is about.
1: Okay. So, and IoT, for anybody who doesn't know what that means, is the internet of things, right? So that's like this, those are, are things, devices that are on the internet other than your computers.
0: Correct. Yes. So, Sorry
1: for No, no, that's okay. I know what it was, but it just, there's, I'm sure there's some people out there that are like my, my dad, if he's listening, has no fucking idea what we're talking about. <laughs> um, but so what's now, are you selling to the OEMs who are making the devices or are you selling to companies that have a lot of devices on, on networks or on, so- on the internet?
0: So, so the latter, uh, we basically sell to organizations to be able to visualize, understand, and secure their own environment. So it's not uh, to OEMs, to your point, it's for the organizations themselves.
1: And are the OEMs, the people that are making, let's say that you know, you're making refrigerators that are going to be on the internet because they're going to order your food for you or whatever, do the OEMs care about security at all? Or are they just making these devices and saying, here, go with it, and it's really the end user who cares about the security?
0: So... I doubt that there are manufacturers out there that don't care entirely. I think it's uh, it's naive uh, maybe to think that these, these days, mostly because uh, cybersecurity threats are very, very real, and they have the potential of really destroying uh, the reputation and brand of a company. So I think if the last few years taught us anything, it's that manufacturers internalize the fact that they have to have some security. Now the problem is that that security costs money, um, and that money comes off of uh, margins for a lot of these devices that aren't great. Uh, so ultimately, organizations need to make decisions, hard decisions, many times of just how much security is enough, and usually it's way, way, way lower than what you'd want. And of course. There are also geographical constraints. I think that uh, some countries in the world uh, are more aware, and manufacturers feel more ownership towards uh, their future users than other countries, and that also impacts uh, a lot of how the landscape looks like.
1: When when I was looking at your website earlier, you've got some pretty solid marquee clients. I mean, um, you know, you've got some brands that everybody knows the names of. Um, do are are they doing this and using your services because they're, they're large organizations or are they doing this because there's a real need? Is it a combination? And, and when do we get to the stage that it's like a Y2K problem where, or fear that like every homeowner wants your stuff as well, or is that, do you ever go down to that level?
0: Well, um, we started definitely from some of the larger clients. I think that, uh, there's a, a rule of thumb in security that, uh, uh, secu- the security issues or the cybersecurity issues are exponentially larger uh, according to the size of the company. But the reality is that these days, um, that's uh, that's no longer really the case. If you think about it, I think that uh, two years ago, um, cybersecurity was one of these things that large organizations thought about a lot, and you know, a ten people organization thought about not at all. Like they they didn't give it. A second thought, because from their perspective, why would they? They're not a target. Uh, They're not, uh, you know, they're not able to provide attackers with pretty much anything. That um, that wasn't really true then either. But in the last two years, I think we've seen seen a seismic change uh, happen. I think everyone is concerned about things like ransomware these days. Uh, Everyone is concerned about the notion of having their data locked. Um, and ransomed and uh, um, spread out into the wild or things like that. And uh, there's almost no organization, small or large today, that can afford to not think about cybersecurity at all. Having said that, again, the complexities of, and the scale of an environment that a large scale organization has are infinitely larger than a small one. Um, Basic hygiene for smaller organizations can usually work pretty well to to combat most of the different uh, threats, especially since they're not really targeted, but large organizations can't afford to not secure themselves and budgets are ever increasing, even though the damages from cybersecurity are increasing even more.
1: Now again, yeah. So you're explaining the issue pretty clearly for us. Now I want to dig into the, the company itself. When, when you look at your leadership team, um, you've either got a really small company with some really big titles, but my guess is that you guys are actually a big company now. How many total employees have you grown into now? My guess is about 600 and I'm probably low.
0: Um, well, we're, we're, we're around 450, okay. uh, at this point, uh, we've grown quite a bit in the span of about six years. Uh, so we're slightly under six years in, uh, in age, but about 450 employees. Uh, And just generally distribution, uh, there's about 200 or so in in Israel. That's where the R&D product and a lot of the folks who, uh, you know, the the way smarter folks than I am who build the actual uh, tech and product and magic. And then uh, most of the other folks, um, sales, marketing, business development, customer success, all these different functions, uh, they're mostly in the US, but spread out worldwide, uh, of course, as well
1: okay so i got lots lots i want to dig into here first first question i've got is you know when you're co-founding a company and and you're going from like the three employees to 10 to 10 to 30 30 to 100 100 to 300 there's these inflection points that start to to hit Uh, did you raise money or you you must have raised money okay i was gonna say you didn't grow organically how much have you raised
0: uh well we had a a a bit of a odd um, history in that regard. I think up until about a year and a half ago, we grew uh, pretty much like a regular uh, venture capital startup. Uh, We raised um, three rounds uh, and a seed before, but uh, three rounds C in total. And then uh, what happened was, and and we raised, I think uh, the total was around $120 million or so. And then uh, what happened then was uh, in Early 2020, right before the pandemic hit, uh, Insight Partners, um, who, are, who are one of our investors and a VC out of New York, uh, did uh, what they called a venture acquisition. Uh, it basically means they bought out um, all, the other investor, uh, all the other investors, but uh, Capital G, which is uh, Google's venture arm. Uh, and they bought everyone out and basically put uh, $1.1 billion on the company. Um, they it, it was an event in which uh, every single employee in the company also got uh, paid for it, basically got... Um, Cashed out, if you will, on uh, on the options that they had, and then immediately got re-upped on new equity and basically the same startup and continued working the same as before. Um, pretty interesting event. That uh, you know, when I when I first when we started uh, uh, talking to Insight about this, I was like, uh, what, "What's the catch? It sounds like uh, we're getting paid a bunch of money nice. and then, yeah, and then we're just you know." getting equity and zooming on uh, towards the horizon. But um, if you think about it, uh, um, Insight's logic is pretty simple. Uh, They really believe in the company. They believe this is a $20 billion company. And if they do, then why own 10% out of it? I want to own most of it. And being a VC, they understand that mostly that people, their sense of ownership in the company is really, really important. So from their perspective, the fact that the employees need to have equity as a given so, so it just kind of worked itself out uh, from there today the company is uh, valued at two billion dollars uh, we raised another round a few months ago but um, we're on on the path uh, to kind of grow and scale the company um, as much as we can here
1: so your father-in-law is happy now
0: yes I he's happy <laughs> well yeah well well I put it this way I'm uh, I've, I've since divorced but uh, I'm sure he's still happy and uh, yeah.
1: That's good. Enjoy. All right. Yeah. So, so what was it like and, and what kind of lessons have you had to learn in the role that you're in to, to stay in the role that you're in? Like, how do you, how have you been able to grow as a leader? You must have grown substantially in the six and a half years.
0: I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, my, uh, younger self would recognize me in, in a mirror, uh, even, but, uh, I think, um, a lot of things happen when you grow very rapidly and very fast. Um, uh, Some things are incredibly surprising uh, in, for good and bad, uh, and some of them you just sort of learn from a technique standpoint as you go. Uh, the good thing is, by the way, I think uh, it's true for a lot of ecosystems of startups, but it's definitely true for the Israel ecosystem. Uh, there are a lot of very good and very willing founders that you can talk to, that you can have as uh, mentors, that you can uh, ask questions. So. A lot of things are, you have a lot of support. And today I will say that uh, myself and Evgeny are very, very active in that community. And we care a lot about founders starting their own companies for these exact same reasons. But mm. to your point, I think uh, as a company grows, uh, it's, it's interesting to see uh, evolution, especially around uh, management and leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. if, essentially, at first, I, I, I think that we're what I'd call it the third step of our management, leadership, evolution. The first step is the easiest. Uh, you have 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, maybe, max. Uh, and you basically run everyone like a team. Um, you're directly involved in pretty much any process. Uh, you make decisions. People just go with it. Everybody knows everything. There's not really a communication gap. And you're usually very geographically close. So it, it's like uh, it's considerably easier uh, than uh, larger scale organizations. The next step, uh, which is is hard uh, if you've never done it before, and I've never done it before, so it's uh, it's a little hard adjustment, but uh, is is um, managing uh, through a first layer of uh, of managers, or basically being able to instead of instruct everyone, uh, you have to be you have to act as like a, like a judge, like a critic. Uh, you basically let people run and do their things, and then you course correct them or explain where or what you think should have been done differently. And as a result of that, uh, a shared culture is basically created. uh, And people know intrinsically what to do. They sort of try and uh, intuit or understand uh, what it is that the company needs done, and they work from there. The third layer of evolution is what happens when you reach, I would say, roughly 100, 150 people, maybe a little more. And especially if it's geographically dispersed uh, in the world, the third layer of management is around um, shared values. And uh, basically what I call um, a compass, uh, it's, it's kind of like um, instead of trying to manage every decision, you're basically trying to, uh, uh, on top of like a, a random set of people making random decisions, you're trying to sort of put like a, like a field, like a magnetic field is trying to orient everyone towards a shared north. Mm. And in that regard, you're trying to influence all these micro decisions happening according to a shared set of values and mission, and you end up course correcting whatever you can along the way. But if you don't do that part right, uh, you end up with a very top-heavy organization where a lot of people lose their initiative and their ability to um, innovate and do things on their own as opposed to a very healthy culture of values, uh, if that makes sense. And I have to say that that's a lesson that I've learned personally heavily from Google as well.
1: Hmm. I'm curious what, and, and kind of what, when you got to the second stage of those, the managers and leading through them, that is what I was kind of thinking of the 30 to the 100 and then the 100 to 300 where you are now. I'm, I'm curious as well what lessons you learned because the leadership team that you have clearly were not promote from within. You know, there might mm-hmm. be, there might've been two or three of you that kind of grew within the organization, but I, my guess is that of the other 10 or 12 that are on your leadership team, um, they were mostly from the outside brought in.
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: How did that go? And, and what can you teach people in terms of how to bring in these solid leaders without causing too many ripple effects, you know, in the organization?
0: Uh, good question. Uh, when I figure it out, I'll let you know uh, how to do it uh, seamlessly. But but I'll tell you what the what unifying factor to all of this there is. Uh, it's actually not that hard to bring in new leaders in the beginning. The reason is that usually they form new organizations that didn't exist before. In which case, there's not really that much contention. The problem is that it's really rare to have uh, folks that um, can do well in the early stages, which when it's very hands-on, very, um, uh, I'd say where you have to make a lot of decisions, uh, basically uh, even kind of a dictatorship. Yeah, exactly. And be, and be in many cases, by the way, uh, a micromanager, someone who actually is in every detail and can guide everything top to bottom, and then be able to make the transition into a larger scale organization where you have to be able to scale that. You can't micromanage anymore. You can't really uh, be in the details of every single thing, but at the same time, you have to be able to instill and empower an organization, kind of lead them from behind. Those two people tend to be very different people. There are examples of people who can make that kind of transition, but they are few uh, in number. And usually, what happens to a can- to a company is that uh, somewhere along the ra- along the way, you have to make uh, transitions. You have to find different people. Sometimes it happens uh, by. Um, adding a layer on top, basing, basically adding kind of a strategist on top of the person um, who's uh, uh, being more tactical. Our experience has been that that rarely works. Uh, mm-hmm. It's usually it, it's usually something that. Um, it's, it's a rare breed of people where I think even uh, from, from a personal uh, standpoint uh, are willing to go through a route like that, and that's okay. I think uh, it's, uh, it, it's an amazing market out there for people right now to find the jobs that they want, especially in leadership positions, and especially if they have the right experience so you know everyone can find their own spot uh, and find what they love.
1: I've, I just launched a course recently called invest in your leaders. And it's the the kind of what I believe are the 12 core leadership skills that all managers and leaders need to be really good at to continue to grow with the company. Did you notice that as you, as you scaled quickly, like six and a half years, you know, I'm not gonna ask revenues, but your revenues, I'm sure grew just as fast as your, as your headcount has. Did you find that you had to grow your people as well, or they were going to be out of a job? Like they just can't, you know, if their skills don't increase at the pace of the company growth, they can't stay in their role?
0: Yes. Um, and that's actually solvable in two ways. To your point, one is investing in them, which we're doing heavily. I think both in managers as well as by the way, any person in the company uh, trying to invest as much as possible in their skill set uh, in what they can do. Uh, but the other part is, um, I think a combination of transparency about things that are working well and aren't. And at the same time, uh, being able to uh, be willing to, uh um, Allow people to transition horizontally within the organization to places where they might be of more use. This happened to us uh, many different times. I think uh, it's actually very, in my opinion, very healthy to an organization as well to have cross functional knowledge. People who basically did one thing and then work in another organization, do something else. When it works, it's great. In many cases, you can find uh, both um, for the people themselves diversity in their role, but at the same time, find better fits as the organization grows for their particular skill set.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. That's that's kind of what Jim Collins talked about in his first book, Good to Great, when he talked about getting the right people in the right seats. You know, at some point there, there might be a different seat or a different role that is better for them, and then they can just continue to excel. So it's like they grow, they go lateral, they grow again, they go lateral. All right, I want to go back to your younger self. You are, before you're joining the army or you're just, you know, you're maybe you could have left the military after a couple of years, What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known maybe when you were 21?
0: Wow, that is a very, very interesting uh, question. Um, I would say um, one of the things I've consistently learned uh, throughout my entire career is that uh, business and any kind of objective you're trying to achieve is about people um, and not, uh, and, and almost everything else um, is uh, less important as a lesson. Uh, it's all about people, uh, it's about remembering for a second that. Uh, You know, these people, they don't have to work for you and they don't have to work with you. Uh, They work because uh, they are intrinsically interested in whatever it is uh, that you're jointly doing. And uh, no matter how much uh, other people around you might try and push everything into a spreadsheet, uh, it's all about uh, those people. And it's all about uh, their ability to lead or to follow or to do anything that they need to do. Uh, It translates either, by the way, um, I think, um, well at both large scales and small scales. I think that uh, you get judged by whoever you lead in, uh, especially in the times where it's really great and at the times where it's really tough. In those two instances, you are judged for everything that you do whether you um, share and make everything uh, you know good for everyone. Um, an example of that, by the way, would be that in that um, insight acquisition I mentioned before that happened, we made sure that every single person, even someone that joined the day before of the acquisition uh, would get something out of it and something as substantial as we could make it. From the belief that if you treat people right when it counts, then it will matter in the long run significantly. Same goes when times are, are tough. People look uh, for your leadership, for how you treat them, for how you treat this, if you're uh, still um, supporting them, if you're still making sure that everyone uh, is, is contributing and doing what they need to versus not. I think that's a lesson that I learned the first time in the army. I've learned it later on in life, and I've learned to be uh, very vocal and adamant about that, uh, because I think that a lot of people, um, sadly, that I work with outside of uh, Armist or in the community, don't necessarily understand what that means uh, when it mm-hmm. comes down to people.
1: Interesting. I love, the, I, I love the insights you still carry with you on that. All right. We have uh, Nadir Israel, the CTO and co-founder of Armist Security. Thanks so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command Podcast. Really appreciate the ideas and the time.
0: Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.